0: Hey, dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I've been invited to speak for a free conference that starts January 31st. It's the Kindness is Essential, Not Optional Conference being put on by Holly Tet of Paws Up Dogs in the UK. It's all about how raising and training a dog can be tough, and you are both owed kindness. I'm sharing the stage with a lot of really big, awesome names, and I'm so honored. There's a link for you to register in the show notes. I hope you'll join us. Hey friends, this week I am talking with Barb Buckmeyer, author of Positive Herding 101, Dog-Friendly Training. Barb and I talked for well over an hour about dogs, dog training, why herding is so interesting and different, and because of that, I've cut this episode into two. So this is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast. Will you start by sharing your first and last name with us? Hi, I'm Barb Buckmeyer. So Barb, we have a mutual friend in animal training. And to put it simply, when she tells me to pay attention to a trainer, I do it. (laughs) So she told me your name a long time ago because we were talking about herding. I have herding dogs. She was wondering why I don't herd my herding dogs. I've had Border Collies for over 20 years and it's a little bit ridiculous. And I basically said that I wasn't comfortable with a lot of the training methods that I thought were pretty much always involved. And then, and that's why she told me about you because she said, well, I know somebody who's doing it different. And fast forward a few years and I'm reading your book in my kitchen and I'm fully understanding why our very wise friend told me about you. So just to be, Super clear, you train successful herding dogs with a positive reinforcement-based system, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's been a long journey. Uh, I didn't start out that way. I started out learning traditional herding training, but I got to the point where I, I was pretty proficient at it. And I was an open handler and I wanted to start telling my dogs Yes, I like what you're doing. Yes, do more of that instead of no, not that. No, no, not Mm -hmm. that. And so I started looking for a different way. And that's when I found balance training, which I was a balance trainer for about one day and decided, realized that that really isn't the best way to go. And my philosophy is the better a positive trainer you are, the less positive punishment you have to use. So... Mm -hmm. You know, I end up saying eh, to my dogs once in a while or no reward markers, you know, give them the looks. But as far as, um, you know, having my philosophy based on positive reinforcement, having my philosophy based on positive reinforcement is what I wanted to do and what I found works really well for the dogs. It's really a lot of fun. I think that's fantastic. And I think that,
0: um, what you said there was interesting that the more, it's kind of the more skilled you are at the use of positive reinforcement, the less positive punishment you'll need to lean on. And I have found that to be true, but we're going to get, we're going to get nitty gritty a little bit about why I think a lot of people think hurting is a little bit different than maybe training obedience or agility. So What does kind of successful mean to you as far as herding goes? What does your herding life look like? And what, what does it mean to you to feel like you have created a method that is successful?
1: To me, a successful herding dog is a dog that uses their natural instinct if they have instinct. And I want them to use that instinct because there's no way that I can read stock as well as one of my dogs can. I mean, there's just no way. And so I don't want to take that away from them. And I don't want to make a mechanical. And the person I learned traditional herding from was very much into allow your dog to use their abilities. And so even training using positive reinforcement, I found that's very possible. In fact, that's I wouldn't want to do this if I couldn't do it that way, because I don't want to make my dogs into little robots. If you're going to do that, you might as well have a little car out there that you can, you know, zoom around with or something. (laughs) So, but then I've also found that there's a lot of people that have dogs, high energy dogs, especially that are interested in and doing some of this work because it doesn't to start, it doesn't involve any stock. So They can do it, but their dog may not have instinct for herding. Well, then you're gonna get more of a mechanical dog because the dog doesn't read the livestock. They don't know how to place themselves or control the livestock. So then the handler has to step up and take a little more responsibility, actually a lot more responsibility. But it's still, the whole idea is it should be fun for both the dog and the handler. And if the dog has the instinct, I'm all for let's let them use that because it, to me that's one of the most awesome things is seeing a herding dog use their instinct and just to bend out and cover and there are times when right. the stock moves so fast and so erratically that there's no way I could tell my dog what to do you know I mm-hmm. just let them handle the situation
0: So successful is really allowing the dog's natural ability to shine.
1: Yes. In my book, yes.
0: Yeah. I I like that answer. Um, So in reading your book, I was really excited that you focus on stimulus control of the hurting behaviors under various conditions so you know you ultimately ask for that stimulus control around the ultimate kind of competing motivator which would be sheep or livestock but you train the behaviors away from the sheep away from the livestock so that you can achieve that high level stimulus control before bringing in the sheep so i love this this approach is to me it just seems so smart and i'm obviously I'm not educated in herding, but I do a lot of other dog sports and I feel really strongly that this is the way to go for pretty much any training project that's going to be up against tough tough distractions or tough competing motivators is to get that really high level stimulus control away from that that tough project. So I love this idea. Can you talk about that a
1: little bit? Sure. What I like to think about it, the way I like to think about it is if you were going to teach someone to drive, and they they're a young person, and they've ridden in the car all the time, so they they you know they know what a steering wheel does, they know what blinkers are and brakes are, but they've never handled it themselves. And so you say, well, I'm going to teach you to drive the car. So you're you know you're going to get your license soon. So we pull out of the driveway, and they're driving, and and as soon as we can, we pull onto a you know six-lane highway at rush hour, and say okay you're going to learn here and if you make any mistakes i'm going to yell at you and you can just imagine how well that is going to go and so if you can pull that back that's what i try to do with the dogs is it doesn't take much to for a herding dog to get distracted if you take a tug and you hold it out in front of them and then move it a little bit guess what if you ask them to sit you know or do some other cue a lot of them can't do it they get you know they really focus in on that movement and because it brings out that instinct so there's a lot of opportunities to work with this away from livestock and just the sight the smell of livestock is very arousing to them and you can understand that they get so focused they, they just people say oh they they blow me off. Well, a lot of times I don't even think they hear you. They are so full yeah. you know, that they just, they, they, they can't process everything. And to me, it's amazing that when you get a dog trained, that they can have one ear on you and take your cues and one ear on the livestock so that they can shift almost effortlessly from being under your control and taking your cues And being allowed to follow their instinct to me that's amazing because it's happening at high speed with a lot i mean you get some sheep moving and maybe one breaks away there's so much distraction so much going on and yet you know if you allow that dog to cover and encourage them they will but if you need that one you're shedding you need that one to be shed off you can stop the dog and ask them not to cover that animal and to see that they can you know, toggle back and forth a good dog, it, it's just amazing to me. And that's, you know, that's what I base the whole, my home method or system on is first we get engagement with the handler away from stock with a tug, a flirt pole, ball, anything, food, everything. And then we start uh, training the herding cues away from stock. And we also work on engagement moving that near stock. Can you tug with me? Can you take a treat? Well, stock is maybe 30, 50 feet off until we get the dog close, right up to stock. Can you sit? You know, we start asking for cued behaviors. Can you sit? Can you down? And my friend, Sally from South Africa was probably the first person I really worked with this on through, you know, long distance. And she swore, she's a good positive trainer, and she'd done a lot of trick training, agility training. She swore for three weeks that this was not possible for her dog to be able to do this near Penn stock. And I said, well, the problem is if she can't sit or, you know, tug and do what you ask her to do, she's not gonna be able to take herding cues. And so she persevered. And eventually, of course, her dog could do it. Well. Now she says that was the most important thing that she did in the most important step, because it really is kind of the bridge between teaching these herding skills and other skills away from stock and bringing them to stock. You have to build that engagement with you and where your dog can take cues fluently, any kind of cues.
0: Yeah, and it actually sounds a lot like the program that I have for primarily for agility dogs who are kind of out of their mind about agility. The first question I usually want the people to ask the dog is can you eat near this stimulus? Because if you can't, we got nothing. We got to back up, (laughs) right? Exactly. Yeah, and I, you know, so I have them ask, can the dog eat? And then can the dog respond to those basic cues? Because if they can't, then really what business do we have? Asking them to do this very complex work that's highly arousing, right? Yes. And Definitely. So that was something that excited me, Barb, about your book is that I was like, oh, wow, she's thinking about agility the way that I'm thinking about, or she, you're thinking about sheep and sheepdog training the way that I'm thinking about agility, which is I need the dog to be responsive to cues, eating food, essentially have a clear head before I go into this work that is so exciting for them and so so valuable to them yeah. so I want to segue a tiny bit I want to talk about reinforcers for just a second because you sure. mentioned you mentioned food and toys and I think that um, a lot of times when we think about anything to do with instinct like hurting or maybe like hunting or maybe you know, searching for rats or, or anything like that, we think of the reinforcer at play as being the thing, the stock, the bird, the rat. And I think that that probably, you know, that may wind up being true, but there are a lot of instances in smart animal training where we might start with a reinforcer that's more usable for us, like food or toys, before then kind of transferring it to a reinforcer that is less under our control. And so therefore, you know, not as not as slick for us to teach on.
1: So can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's really smart. Oh, this is, yeah, this is the the whole crux of the whole, you know, training, because you, you cannot, you know, people will turn a dog out with loose sheep and they'll put them in a small area and there's no way you can control that, you know, what the dog's gonna do they're gonna do a lot of rehearsal of things you don't want and they're gonna reinforce, even just like I said, watching smelling stock is very reinforcing for the dogs. Oh yeah. Yeah. But the same thing is, that you were saying, you need to, if you can have a reinforcer, like people always talk about pre-MAC and say, oh well, you know, if your dog likes to chase squirrels, then you can reinforce with squirrel chasing. It's like, well, sure, <laughs> but <laughs> I've never figured out exactly how to do that, you know, consistently. You know, maybe it might work out once in a while. But what I found, first of all, I just wanted to say I was told for many years that dogs would not take treats near stock. And yep. so I worked on that and I had two older dogs and two younger dogs at the time and my they were right. My younger dogs would not take treats near stock. But then I was sitting there one day I we, we processed milk. And so I had a lot of milk crates. So I'm sitting on a milk crate thinking, and I had really good treats like hamburger. And while I was thinking about what was going on and why the dogs wouldn't take the treats, one of my older dogs came over and kind of sniffed around. I said, well, would you like this treat? And they said, Oh, sure. So I called my other dog, older dog over. Would you like, treat? well, sure. So then I knew it was possible. The problem was I was like, you know, 10 times too close to my, you know, stock. So it was just like, no way. But that, that once I saw those dogs take those treats, I knew that it was possible. And then it was just a matter of figuring out, okay, why aren't my dogs taking it, my young dogs, and how do I, you know, enhance this situation, which meant basically get the heck a lot farther back away from them you know, put them in a small pen so they don't move. And even start out, bring that dog into an area where it's stock has been. You know, they smell the sheep. There's nothing there. Even that can be so arousing. They can't eat. Let mm-hmm. them run around, smell, sniff. And, and then when they kind of say, oh, geez, there's no sheep here, then, okay, now can you eat? And then we just keep moving closer and closer. But it's, um, so that's kind of, that was the breakthrough for me well then it was like well you know eventually i get to where i use the sheep or the stock as a reinforcer because that's what the dogs want and that's what they're going to really work for but Mm -hmm. you know i can't i can put sheep in a little pen but i can't hide them or move them out of the way when my dog does something i don't want them to do so i um i use tugs and those are great the problem I find with tugs and balls and uh, even food is that it's hard to control that if the dog wants to go for it, they're so much faster than I am. They usually beat me, and you know, even though I train to try and have that stimulus control, every time they beat me, you know, they self-reinforce, and so I don't really like that so much. So what I found is a flirt pole rat. Is the closest thing I've ever found to having a sheep on a string because they can, you know, I can move that rat, I can make it dance. But if they, you know, if they walk in and I tell them what I use is I'll use a a marker, yes, or a click, but that doesn't mean you're free to grab it until I say get it. And if they come in and then they get close and they go to grab it, I can just whip it out of the way in my hand. And because they consider it prey, honestly, the the dogs look at that as a sheep. I mean, it's it's really, it's such an easy tool to use. And, but yet the dogs, it's like a squirrel on a string. I mean, it's just like, that you can control. Uh, To me, that is the greatest uh, reinforcer because it's so easy to manipulate. If you practice a little bit, you can put it anywhere you want, you can fly it back to your hand. And I, like I said, I use tugs, I use treats, I use verbal, you know, reinforcers, laughing. I think my dogs love when I laugh, they sure seem to appreciate it. And Mm -hmm. that is the main thing is that, and I can work my dogs with a flirt pull often around stock and use the flirt pull if the stock is a little bit away. Now, Sally from South Africa, she found once she went to stock, her dog wasn't that interested in training cones, circles or anything. She, If she said, come by, her dog was, where's the stock? I'm supposed to go around. (laughs) Yeah. But I've never found that. My dogs, uh, I can take him up and work, sir, and bring him down and do cone circles. He's like, hey, I'm good with it. You know, he's happy. So it's, um, but yeah, the reinforcer is so real and so you know I can't think of the word I want to say it's just so strong for them and and then you know so that really helps because you can you know ask your dog to sit and you can you know throw a tug or you know roll a treat or move that rat around and you know that's really difficult for the dog so then when you get to stock we start out with the stock in a small pen because even though watching stock and smelling stock is arousing and reinforcing moving stock for a dog with that has the instinct, they want to control movement. So if that stock can move, they, that's like a next step up level of arousal and instinct kicks in, which makes it that much more difficult. So we just eliminate that in the beginning. I put stock in a pen, They're not squished in. they can turn around, you know, and they could lay down if they want, but they can't run 10 feet because I want them to. And the dog seems to inherently realize they're controlled. I don't have to worry about that. And it also protects the dog from the stock and the stock from the dog. You know, they if they, usually I will use a long line at that point and if the dog goes up and tries to, you know, uh, grab the stock, I will just reel, reel them in, walk off, give them a short time out and go back to work. Because then the stock, they didn't get hurt. And the dog learned, well, the game was over. That wasn't much fun. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you're splitting.
0: <laughs> you're saying the final thing that we need is you working around free, free moving livestock. And that is just way too much to ask to begin with. Yeah. And so you might start with cookies and tug toys, and then you're gonna progress to that flirt pole because it really mimics those prey type behaviors, which I love. And then, um, and then you're gonna progress to stock that can't move very far, et cetera, et cetera. And I love it because I think that when we lean really heavily on aversives and aversive control, usually it is because we failed to split somewhere.
1: Yep, yeah, you're, put, you're asking a dog to do too much and i can't tell you how many people have come and they said well my dog knows how to do x or y but then they can't do it even if we try and set up the situation you know pretty much the same same distance maybe stocks not moving and they're, they're like my dog's blowing me off well no let's just retrain this in five minutes we're just going to start from the beginning well guess what the dog can figure it out but yeah i think you're absolutely right I try and split it down so that the dog can be successful. And one of the main reasons I have people have the dog, once we get to stock in a a small pen, drag a long line is so the people can relax. They know there's a way to control the situation, that the dog isn't gonna go round and round. They can't get a hold of them, which I've been there. I I understand this. So I want to prevent that. And, but it's, you don't use the long line in, in my estimation as a steering wheel, you use it as an emergency brake. You know, I'm not gonna tell, you know, I'm not gonna make my dog, I'm not pulling them around with that. It's always loose unless they do something that's really unwanted. And then I'm gonna have something that I can stop the action and, and move them out of there without, you know, having to yank on them or grab them or it's, I always try to make my timeouts just matter of fact, I'm not happy, happy, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not mad at him either. It's just, I always look at that as what, how can I prevent that next time? Am I too close? What do I do to help my dog, you know, be successful here and not have to do this? And I, in my book, I say, if you're using timeouts on a regular basis, you need to back up a long ways because they should be, once in a while, it's going to happen. You know, that's just life. You're going along and uh, maybe that sheep looked at your dog mean or, you know, for you know, that communication. Your dog just decides to say, hey, I'm going to go in and try and grab him. But if you're doing this all the time, you know, that's not the goal of the train. The goal is to, like you said, split it so the dog can be successful. And I've just found that if I'm nervous and if I'm feeling That I lack confidence then my dog picks up on that really easily and so like when I'm feeding treats if if my dog takes them really kind of snaps them out of my hand I know they're really kind of on the edge and so Mm -hmm. I might just throw treats in the grass and let them let them sniff or something like that but uh, I try you know I'm always trying to see what what my dog is doing and one thing I'll do is I'll take a chair or a milk crate out and I'll sit down and I'll just relax and if I can be relaxed, my dog can relax. And then, you know, then we move on. I think we tend to want to have action all the time. Oh, we asked for this, now let's do this. Now there's this, 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 this. And the dog starts feeling like it's constant motion. And if we can take those breaks and it gives us time to kind of relax and decompress. But I, like I said, I found if I'm confident and I think my dog can do it, then it seems to go so much better than if I'm always kind of on the edge, well, is this going to happen? You know, I'm nervous. And then, you know, our dogs read us so well that they pick up on that.
0: For sure. And I think if you're nervous about what the outcomes are going to be, then like you just said, you probably have pushed too far. Like you probably are asking questions that you're not ready to be asking of the dog. If you're nervous about what the outcome is going to be. Yes. I have a question for you about the timeout usage. And I totally agree with you. I think um, they, I think a timeout can be a part of a positive reinforcement based training paradigm, but that it is so important that they're not actually, it's not, it's not like it's part of, part of your big plan that like, and now, and then this will happen. And then I will have a timeout. It's more like, and then if this mistake occurs that I can't prevent, yes, then I have I have a way of responding. Would you say that timeouts don't become part of the picture until livestock is involved or would you, or do you involve them with the other reinforcers?
1: I've not thought about that, but no, I don't ever use them any other time. I really yeah, don't. I, mean, I don't I need think them.
0: That, exactly. Right. Because I think that they become necessary when you have lost control over the reinforcer. Yeah. And I just think that that's important for everybody to think about because in a lot of situations, like I'm going to say, like in the sport of dog agility, the reinforcer does become running the course, does become the equipment for a lot of these dogs. And you kind of can't control whether they blow through their contact and run into a, a tunnel. Like you actually can't any more than you can control, that they went for the sheep when they weren't supposed to. And so that is where people then tend to lean hard on those timeouts. But I think the same thing is true that if you're using them really frequently, then you are asking questions that you're not prepared to be asking yet. And I love the, you know, I love proofing behaviors and agility with my reinforcers that I can control. I can't control whether you run into that tunnel. But I can control re- whether or not I hit the button on the manners minder and it releases your cookie. And I can control toys better than I can control a tunnel most of the time. <laughs> and a flirt pole is a great idea. I mean, right, a flirt pole, you really can, it's attached to you by a string. You can remove it from the situation. So I think, I think that's an important um, little piece there about timeouts that they aren't necessary for you no. until the access to the reinforcer becomes something you have less control over.
1: Right. And one thing I'd say about flirt poles is people need to be really careful with them because you want to keep them low on the ground or moving along the ground like a rat or a squirrel on the ground. Mm-hmm. And when you whip them up and into your hands, you want to whip them up and out of the way, high overhead as fast as you can. And you don't want your dog to jump and twist and get hurt. Yeah. So- you know, you have to be careful with them. I know, you know, it's possible that they can get hurt. They can get hurt doing anything. I mean, but, you know, you just want to be, have practice with it so that you're, you feel comfortable that you can place the rat and where you want it and that you can get it back in your hand and try not to let the dog grab it, you know, when you, when you don't want them to, but on the other hand, you know, you don't want to keep it at a point where the dog is going to be jumping and leaping if a lot of times if you will bring the flirt pole especially a a longer one a lunge whip which is like seven foot long with so you can really whip the uh, rat high if you whip it over their head back and forth a couple times they'll just stop and and that's really the response i want when that rat's starting to leave and it's going up i want my dog to stop i don't want them lunging forward or jumping Mm -hmm. in but like i said that's I think that's um, a safety issue and people need to be concerned. And then I had someone say, well, I don't, you know, I got hurt with a long line, you know, <laughs>
0: nothing, is, you right. know nothing is inherently safe, right? right. In dog. I mean, generally speaking. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I try and make it, you know, you're not going to, you don't, you're not steering the dog around with that and you're not, you know, it's a light, long line and it's got a knot on the end so you can step on it. And it's basically an emergency break. We're not going to use it a lot. And like I said, it's for your confidence. So you know that yeah. if something goes awry that, you know, I've had a dog run and run around and round around, a, you know, a pen of sheep and you just cannot get them because they balance on you. You know, as you come around, they're like going the other direction. So if yeah. you have a long line that's longer than halfway around in, you know, two seconds, you put your foot on it. Hey everything stops, you know, and that's, that's what you want. And so I think it's just so important,
0: whatever tool you're using, you need to be proficient in that tool. Yes. Before you involve the dog. So if you're going to use a flirt pole, especially one of those nice long ones, um, I'm the first to admit I'm a complete klutz with that thing. I am not trained on flirt poles, okay? I am not trained, and the couple of times I've tried, I've been like, wow, okay, this is not as easy as it looks. I need some education on this, or somebody's gonna get hurt, whether it's me or the dog.
1: Yeah, because it's, yeah, it's it's not, Betty. And the other thing is, if you're gonna herd and you're gonna work sheep, you know, I talk about there's a flight zone and a fight zone, and if you get your dog in certain situations, that sheep is going to fight. And there's, you know, one woman asked me um, in my group about, well, the trainer I'm working with will have the, have my dog bring the sheep up to me really fast. And should I move or stand still? And it's like, oh, please don't move when the sheep are running (laughs) towards you because, you know, they're going to try and avoid you. But if you, you know, zig when they zag, you know, Girl, so you can yeah. get hurt. You can get hurt, and Absolutely. I try and emphasize safety first and everything. And that's why I really love the sheep in the small pen because it's protecting you and the dog and the sheep. But you know, it's just inherent. And in you get up out of bed, and and sometimes you don't have to get up out of bed to get hurt. So it's just you know, <laughs> very it's true. Like, it's like very true. You know, but we try and be. You know, I try and have people you know, think about safety and, and plan for it and do the best they can. But, you know, it's, you got to use your head, you got to think about it. And you got to, like you said, I think was very important. If, if you don't feel comfortable about something, there's probably a darn good reason. And I tell people, if I ask you to do something, or anybody, if a lot of people go to traditional trainers, and then they have good experiences and bad experiences, and I try and tell them if if anyone, if it's me or anyone asks you to do anything with your dog you are not comfortable with or ask you to do it, then you need to stop and talk about it. And if someone's doing something with your dog that you don't like, you need to step in and stop it because you are gonna protect your dog. Your dog can't you know, protect themselves. And I can't tell you how many people have told me, you know, in 10 minutes, my dog's been set back oh, so far and, you know, I had this gut feeling it, and I think it's, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed just you know, well, this person's supposed to know so much and they're not sure, but if your gut says this isn't right, then you just have to step up and, you know, stop it. And, and even if it's okay, we need to talk about this. And one of the most interesting things Sally had was she'd gone to, uh, she didn't go to any traditional trainers until her dog was ready to trial. And then she went and worked at some places and her dog was cutting in on top. So when the dog goes out and they get around behind the stock, they're supposed to stay behind and go out far enough so they don't disturb the stock until they get behind and start bringing them directly to you. And when they slice in, they start pushing the stock off to the side before they, you know, get behind them. And her dog was slicing in on top, we call it. And so they the man saw her and you know saw what the dog was doing and so they they were having a little powwow and her dog was laying next to her and they were talking and his idea was she should reach down grab her dog by the collar lift her front legs up off the ground and yell at her and that was going to solve this problem and <laughs> sally just turned at him and just and said why would i do that my dog's doing exactly what i want her to do right now and, you know, so it's, but I mean, there, people will tell you things like, if you, if you play with your dog, if you pet your dog, if you rub your dog's stomach, it will ruin your dog for hurting. It will not. <laughs> it will not, I'm here to tell you. But, you know, it makes people nervous because, oh, your dog's going to be mechanical. They don't understand how it can work. And that was the best thing about working with Sally is people knew she's 8,000 miles away. There's no way I ever touched her dog. You know, it was just, we did um, Skype and email and what was the other thing? YouTube. And we'd sit there and we'd watch the videos. And so people knew there's no way that I was the one who stepped in and and did anything with her dog. But people, I mean, I have students now that they go and they're trying to learn just about. Hurting from other trainers and they're just like well you're gonna you're gonna ruin your dog you're gonna make them mechanical they'll never work that you know you you'll just totally ruin them and it's like i've kind of come up with a it's called get set for positive Hurting, and uh, set stands for support engagement and training and i think mm-hmm. people need the support to know that this is possible and even though you're going to have a lot of naysayers Uh, We've proven it works, and uh, like you said, you can, if you're a good positive trainer and you've trained another sport, you can kind of see how this all works. It's not very, you know, it's not like, gosh, this is totally new. I've never thought anything like this. It's like, oh, that's kind of how I do that, only, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. a little different. You might use different tools and you can have a different outcome, but it's really not that different than how you train agility.
0: And that seems like a good place to take a break. I hope you'll join me next week for part two of Positive Herding. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.